When he woke in the woods, in the dark, in the cold of the night, he'd reach out to touch the child sleeping beside him. Nights dark beyond darkness, and the days more gray each one than what had gone before, like the onset of some cold glaucoma dimming away the world. His hand rose and fell softly with each precious breath. He pushed away the plastic tarpaulin and raised himself in the stinking robes and blankets and looked toward the east for any light, but there was none. In the dream from which he'd wakened, he had wandered in a cave where the child led him by the hand, their light playing over the wet flowstone walls. Like pilgrims in a fable, swallowed up and lost among the inward parts of some gigantic beast. Deep stone flues where the water dripped and sang, tolling in the silence, the minutes of the earth, and the hours, and the days of it, and the years without cease, until they stood in a great stone room where lay a black and ancient lake, and on the far shore, a creature that raised its dripping mouth from the rimstone pool and stared into the light with eyes dead white and sightless as the eggs of spiders. It swung its head low over the water, as if to take the scent of what it could not see. Crouching there, pale and naked and translucent, its alabaster bones cast up in shadow on the rocks behind it, its bowels, its beating heart, the brain that pulsed in a dull glass bell... It swung its head from side to side, and then gave out a low moan and turned, and lurched away and loped soundlessly into the dark. With the first gray light, he rose and left the boy sleeping, and walked out to the road, and squatted and studied the country to the south. Barren, silent, godless. He thought it was the month of October, but he wasn't sure. He hadn't kept a calendar for years. They were moving south. There would be no surviving another winter here. When it was light enough to use the binoculars, he glassed the valley below, everything paling away into the murk, the soft ash blowing in loose swirls over the blacktop. He studied what he could see, the segments of the road down there among the dead trees, looking for anything of color, any movement, any trace of standing smoke. He lowered the glasses and pulled down the cotton mask from his face and wiped his nose on the back of his wrist and then glassed the country again. Then he just sat there, holding the binoculars and washing, watching the ashen daylight congeal over the land. He knew only that the child was his warrant. He said, If he is not the word of God, God never spoke. All right. Welcome to another episode of the Capo Podcast. This is going to be our episode over the road by Cormac McCarthy. And that entrance is the first, I don't know, page and a half. And it gives you the lay of the land that you're walking into. And what you see is a father and his son. And they are living outdoors in a apocalyptic wasteland and the father the father's first thought after kind of the weird dream that you hear about you hear you see the father looking out on this desolate country of nothingness and grayness and he has this this thought that is the child his son 
is his warrant, his responsibility, his purpose. And I really like this line, and I understood it better once I became a father. And the line is, if, if he is not the voice of God, then God never spoke. And before I had a child, I always thought that line was kind of, I don't know, almost blasphemous. Um, but after I had a child, I kind of realized what that meant. And the father looks at his child and he sees, he hears the voice of God literally in his child. And this is a great setup to this. I mean, it's a horrifying book, but it is a great, great book. And it really kind of plugs you in right from the beginning from the father's perspective of he is fighting through this world, this apocalyptic world, and he's doing it only for his child. And his child is what gives him kind of the faith to keep going. And I think that's a, I don't know, I think it's a beautiful start to the story. But I did what I usually do when I do these uh, book podcasts. I like to open with reading the beginning of the book because, as I always say, the beginnings of books are very important and memorable, and I think this is one of those. And uh, so that's where we're starting, is this place of the Father and the Son. Now, where does the story go from here? Because obviously I can't sit here and read you the entire book um, because that would take too long. And this is a sort of one episode summary and analysis of the road. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about this book, what it is, what it's about, what it means. But before we jump too deep into that, um, just a, a couple updates. I've kind of been trying to figure out what what we're going to do with the podcast kind of going forward. And the uh, the school year is starting, and this is going to be my, my first year in a few years that I'm not a teacher. And uh, I got to say, I do miss kind of the lecture part of it, and I think I'm going to keep that alive in the podcast. And um, after I do this one on the road, I'm going to kind of focus for the next few months or maybe all the months of the school year on my favorite lectures and books from my time teaching. And I know that a few high school kids listen to the podcast, so maybe I can help you out a little bit on summaries and analysis and help you kind of impress your teachers when it comes to certain books that you're going to read. Like, uh, I mean, we've already done Lord of the Flies, um, but uh, there's a lot of... I remember that uh, at this time of year, usually um, in American literature, by this time of the year, we, we're we reading a little bit of uh, The Crucible, and which is a play by uh, Arthur Miller, and I think The Crucible is really good. So I, I might do an episode on The Crucible, or just random kind of books that we used to read in school when I was teaching, and maybe that can help you all out. But back to the task at hand for tonight. This one is definitely not one you're going to read in high school. Um, it's probably not even one you'll even hear mentioned in high school for the most part. Um, 
I talked about it when I did American literature just because I did a I did a few different lectures on Cormac McCarthy because in my opinion, back to the road, I think that Cormac McCarthy is the greatest living American author. And there are a few really good American authors. There aren't as many great American authors as there are British uh, authors, but um, when you you know when you're talking about the the greats of all time, there's a whole bunch of British authors and uh, guys like that that fit in there, but there's not as many really great kind of timeless American authors, and that's why I think Cormac McCarthy is kind of a national treasure when it comes to writers because he is just so good. He I mean his stuff is a little high-minded, a little pretentious maybe, but it is undeniably great. And The Road is one of his more recent novels. The Road was written in 2005 and uh the setting, the the place where you find yourself. We already kind of talked about it, but we're we're living in this world of the novel and something very terrible has happened. And throughout the novel, it never really tells you exactly what the event was that caused the world to end. And you're only left to kind of guess what it might be. Um, and all of the, the best guesses on what it might be are either an asteroid hitting the Earth or a supervolcano exploding. Because the world you find is covered in ash, and the sun is constantly blotted out by something in the atmosphere, which means, you know, some kind of sediment. Either an asteroid has hit the Earth, or either maybe a, a supervolcano has exploded. But that's the world that the, that the father and the son, the man and the boy, find themselves in. And they are on the move. They are living on the road. They're, they have a shopping cart that they push along with all of their stuff. They're dressed in rags and blankets. And they are moving south because there is no way that they're going to survive where they are. Because the winters every year are getting colder. There is no longer any vegetation that's living there are no animals left for the most part. There's, you know, almost no wildlife. So the ability to find food is almost impossible. And many, many people have starved by this point. This is when the book opens, we're, we're a few years in, several years in to this cataclysmic event. And I'll explain how we know that here after a while. Uh, as the man and the boy travel, uh, everything they see is gray. The whole, the very, the tone, the tenor, the color of the book is very gray. Everything's ashy, covered in dust, and the very air that they're breathing is kind of full of dust particles and ash. And they're constantly wearing, uh, face masks to try to filter out the air they breathe. And the father 
probably because of breathing in ash for so many years, the father is suffering from some sort of terrible ailment. Early in the book, he kind of walks off by himself into the trees and has this coughing fit and coughs up blood, if I remember right. And you you get the impression early on that the father is dying and he knows that he is dying. And he kind of, uh, he curses his situation He's angry at God for allowing this to happen to him, um, and he's 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 pessimistic, of course. But who wouldn't be in this world? He's not as pessimistic as a lot of other people, but he he seems that way to you as the reader from the outside looking in. And the reason you can't call him too pessimistic is he's still struggling to survive, and a lot of people have checked out of this world. More on that here in a second, too. Uh, they walk along, and the boy is at a young age. It doesn't say exactly how old he is, but he's at this age that young children get where they're, they're constantly asking questions. The boy has grown up in this world, and he has a whole bunch of questions about the world, how things were before, the father reads to him from some books that they carry along with him. Uh, but the boy doesn't quite understand the world before. But even though the boy has grown up in this terrible apocalyptic world of just fear and death and desolation, there's this spark of goodness and kindness and grace that the father sees in him. And this is why the father says that he is the voice of God. It's, it's, the boy is the example of the divine spark of humanity, that little bit of the divine that is in human nature. The boy has that, and the father can see it. And one of the things the father worries about is if the son sees enough of this horrible world that maybe he will lose that. And so he tries to shield him from things that they see, but there's there's almost no helping it. They, you know, they're they're seeing corpses everywhere they go as they walk down the road. Um they see skulls, they see the the remnants of people who have been killed by uh raiders and cannibals on the road. And it's the father has a hard time um, keeping his son, I don't know, positive. And they talk about death a lot because the child's very curious about death. And he asked his father early on uh, if what would happen if I die. And he asked his father, are we going to die? He asked his father if they're going to die a lot because... Truth be told, they are close to starvation and death for most of the book. And the father is pretty honest with the son as far as he says, yes, someday we're going to die, but not right now. And the son asks him, what would happen if I died? And the father says that he would want to die too so that they could be together. They keep moving. The whole book is... Uh, 
there's a lot of lines in the book that like they continued on or they bore on south in the days and weeks to follow and time passes quickly in the book it's this kind of long epic journey but uh it moves pretty quickly they go through the mountains and it's it's kind of hinted at that they're somewhere kind of along the eastern part of the US and they're walking through the Appalachian Mountains is the is the guess. It it might not be that way, but it certainly seems that way. Uh they look for food everywhere they go. A lot of times they find corpses in there. At one point they go into this barn looking for food and uh, they find three corpses hanging from the rafters. Uh, but then they get lucky and they find a kind of store room with a cured ham in it. And they, this is a great find for them because they actually have food. So they find this ham. Later they find some kind of these ancient apples that are almost prunish by this point, but they eat them. Uh, they're always on the, the edge of starvation, though, as they travel. The other thing you see a lot in this book, and we touched on this right at the opening with this dream that the father has. There are a lot of dreams in the book. The father, the, the dreams are explained a lot, and a lot of the story is told kind of in flashbacks of the the father dreaming about his life before all of this happens. And one of these dreams, the father dreams about his wife, the mother of his son. And he dreams about her when they were newly married. Um, but when he wakes up from this dream, he kind of, it makes him it makes him nervous because he has this belief that if you're dreaming about happy, nice, comfortable things, and he's dreaming about his his uh, newlywed wife when they were young, and you know she was in a sheer white gown and she's naked, and this it's this kind of beautiful dream, and he has this belief that that kind of dream is a bad sign because it it means that you are losing your grip on survival. And he believes that the, the right kinds of dreams to have in this situation that they're in are scary, horrifying, troubling dreams, because that means you're struggling against things. And when you start having these good, happy, kind of peaceful dreams, it means that maybe you're kind of giving up a little bit. Later on, they make it to this town, and the father finds a turned over vending machine that's been raided, but he finds one single Coke inside the vending machine. And he has this moment with his son where he he lets his son drink this Coke, which may very well be, for all we know, the last Coke on Earth. And the the son and the father both kind of realize that this might be the one and only soda that the kid will ever drink. Uh, and it's, you know, kind of sad. Next, they keep moving south. Uh, they enter a city at one point, And when they enter this city, there's just mummified dead bodies everywhere. 
Um, and all of these dead bodies have been stripped of their shoes because this is shoes are the one thing that everybody kind of needs in this new world because everybody's always walking and nobody's making new shoes. Uh, they're very careful as they go through this city because they're always uh, at risk of being ambushed by people. Um, they move on, they move on. One night they are sleeping and they're awakened by an earthquake. And after this kind of scene of the earthquake and the scary moment of that, the father remembers what happened in the first years of civilization's breakdown. And this isn't, this isn't like a, a flashback all the way to the very beginning, because that happens a little bit later, but he thinks back to when this all first started, and all these people living on the roads, just like he and the boy are, but way more people kind of carrying backpacks and, and carrying all their belongings on the back, and how early on in the civil, civilizational collapse there became tribes of cannibals. And this is one of the main fears of the father is running into cannibals. Because the only people, or almost the only people left in this world that are still surviving are people who have resorted to killing and eating their fellow man. Because that's the only food source that's really left. All the wildlife has died you know, the, the tin cans of food are running out, people's store sheds are done for, and as resilient and as adaptable as humans are, humans are about the only food source left. And so a lot of people have given up their humanity completely and become cannibals. So, they keep moving on. Uh, it gets colder and colder and colder, and they are headed for the coast, because the father believes if they can get far enough south that they will they will get into a climate that's going to be warm enough to survive in. And then we have the, the flashback that tells you um, the father has this coughing fit and coughs up blood. And right after that, you get the flashback to uh, the first morning after the catastrophe. And... It do, once again, it doesn't say what happened, but it is the the father remembers all of these people, kind of some of them who had been kind of burned up or half burned up, and and other people trying to help and everything breaking down, and then uh, within the year, all of that is over and nobody's trying to help anybody anymore, and there's just. Uh, a return to savagery, where people are murdering each other, uh, cults are forming, um, you know, on the street corners there's dead impaled people on spikes along the road, and it shows how fast everything collapsed once it started down that road. Then it starts to snow. And they're still trying to get south. They're cold all the time. They're wet all the time. Things are getting even worse. Their food stores are dwindling. Um, and the father starts to give more food to the son in order to kind of keep him strong. Uh, 
they have to walk for four days to get out of the snow. Um, and finally, they they find a place to camp. They get lucky. They find some mushrooms, and they find they have a couple cans of pork and beans left. And that night, they sit around the campfire, and the father tells his son stories about heroes from the past, like knights and fairy tale stories. And this is kind of an interesting interlude in the book because the father is trying to keep his son optimistic and thinking about the the true good kind of romantic side of humanity who is struggling and striving for virtue. Um, when the ironic part is there are really no heroes left in this world. And this is a very, this is a book that's really focused on realism and not romanticism, but the father is trying to infuse in his son this belief in heroic virtues because that is something the father views as a good trait for his son to have. They move on a little more. Uh, they find some more corpses. They're walking down the road one day and they encounter this guy who's been struck by lightning. And the sight of this guy who is near death, um, he's he's been struck by lightning and he's still kind of struggling to kind of hobble down the road. And when the boy sees the injured man, it just reduces him to tears. And the father tries to explain that there's there's nothing they can do to help this man. Um, because there's just, he's going to die and there's nothing they can do to help. And the little boy doesn't quite understand uh, what's going on there. Oh, then we have uh, another flashback, another dream. And the father remembers the beginning, the very beginning, the apocalyptic event. Um, there's this streak of light and this explosion, which really makes it seem like an asteroid hits the Earth. And there's this red glow and all the power immediately goes out. And the father's, the father remembers that his first reaction is to run into the bathroom and fill the bathtub up with water. And his pregnant wife is asking him, what is happening? And uh, this is his memory. He's filling up the bathtub and his wife is pregnant. And it shows you a little bit of insight into this guy knows kind of what he's doing and reacting to bad situations because his first thought is, okay, all the power went out, something really terrible happened. What can I do to improve my situation? And the answer is water because he knows that with no electricity, um, once all the once all the electricity goes completely out and there's no power grid, getting water is going to be a problem. You also see that the wife is pregnant, and at the the day that the apocalypse happened, the child wasn't born yet. Uh, more memories about him and his wife kind of sitting across candlelit dinners and watching in the distance as cities burn down, uh, and then. He recalls the the birth of his son and his wife's labor 
And you get the hint that maybe the, uh, the man had some sort of medical training and maybe even was a doctor or something in the world before because he delivers his own son um, and is successful at it. And then we have the three of them walking down the road when the son is very young. They've been, for some reason, they're not in their house anymore. They've been forced to wander the road. And he is always having to debate with his wife about surviving. Because his wife, after a while, gets to this point of a, a loss of faith. She doesn't believe that he can protect her and the boy anymore. Um, she doesn't believe that it's worth fighting anymore to survive because she, she understands that eventually they are going to be caught and she believes that the father is going to be killed and she and the boy are going to be raped and then killed. And... She argues and argues with him and finally decides that she's going to commit suicide. And she says that she wants to uh, kill the boy too so that he does not have to suffer. And the father argues and argues and argues with her about this. And um, he tells her that it, it's, it's wrong for her to wish to be dead. And she gives a kind of chilling speech back to him about how his, his struggle to survive is foolish and there's nothing left to, to struggle for and death is the best thing that can possibly happen. And this makes, of course, makes him very sad and eventually um, the mother does commit suicide. Uh, she cuts her wrist and um, dies. And then the father is left with the son and the two go off on their own. Um, after this flashback, the father and the son are kind of sleeping beside the road and this army comes marching into view. And they run for cover and hide and uh, the father won't let the child look um, but all of a sudden they come into, to view this, this group. I, I called it an army, not really an army. That's later. This time it's just a group of road agents, basically driving a, a crappy old truck that's running on, you know, the last diesel that exists on earth and they're carrying weapons and a couple of them have guns and they are scouting for... It's obvious that they're hunting for people. Um, one of them walks off into the woods to use the bathroom. And he stumbles upon the father and the son. And the father draws his pistol. And the two have kind of a standoff. And eventually, the... He calls him the road rat in the book. But this guy is just kind of this disgusting skinny starving cannibal and it's obvious what he is um and he calls the father's bluff and he grabs a hold of he lunges for the boy and grabs a hold of the boy with a knife to the boy's throat and the father shoots him in the head and 
kills the bad guy while he's holding his son with a knife to his throat and gets, you know, blood and brains all over the boy. And then they run and they escape and they hide. When finally they come back to recover their shopping cart and their stuff, they find that the uh, the guy that he killed has been completely kind of just stripped to the bones and even the bones have been boiled to to get some nutrients out of him. They ate the guy. Um, the son asked his father after this moment if they are still the good guys because they've killed this guy. And his father, of course, says, yes, we're still the good guys. And those are the bad guys. And he... The son has always asked his father what the bad guys look like. And his father says that is what the bad guys look like. And this just reinforces the point that there's there's really no one left in this world that can be trusted, it seems. Um, they keep moving. And they find another town. And at some point, the boy catches a glimpse of another boy that's about his age, maybe a little younger. And he sees this child and the boy goes running after him. And the father chases after the his son and catches him. And the son is just inconsolable uh, because they, he's seen this young boy and he, he doesn't know if the young boy is going to be okay, if, if, if there's something they could have helped him, he thinks, and yada, yada, yada. So... The, this has a bad impact on the boy. Next. Um, they make it to another little town and they find a whole... The, the remnants of a bunch of butchered people and a whole bunch of human heads that have been kind of displayed in some sort of weird ritual... And it's a it's a hint that they're in a bad you know a bad area. There's there's some people around here who are who are a cult of kind of powerful cannibals. And the next day they see them, and the father and the son are hiding beside the road. And this is where the army comes along. And there's it's a it's a procession of kind of marching soldiers, and all of them are kind of dressed. They all have like a red or off red sash or flag or something that they're all carrying to show that they're all kind of members of this tribe and there's wagons and these wagons are being pulled by slaves there are chained women and some of them are pregnant and then in the in the back of the procession and this is kind of a very chilling part there's there's young boys at the back of the procession not too much older than the sun and they are all kind of yoked together with dog collars and it's it's understood that they are like uh being abused sexually they're like catamites like an ancient kind of sex slaves of this disgusting savage group of men and the son sees part of the procession and he asks again if those are the bad guys. And the father says, yes, those are the bad guys. And that's the, that's the clearest 
kind of vision you get of what humanity has become is this procession of savagery. And the father, you kind of understand the father's pessimism in everybody that surrounds him and the boy. He doesn't think that there's anybody left that's good. Um, and the, the only purpose he, he has is, is keeping his son alive and safe from these people. They keep going. They keep going. Um, they make it to a abandoned house. And the father goes into the abandoned house because they're starving. And they, they are looking for some food. And inside the abandoned house is a pantry. And the father thinks, ah, there, maybe there is some food in the pantry. There's a padlock on the door. And the father breaks this padlock and opens the pantry. And what he finds is, again, one of the most horrifying visions of the book. In the pantry are a whole bunch of people. And these people are chained to the wall. And a couple of them have had more than one limb cut off and then kind of tourniqueted to keep them alive. And this is a pantry of... It's a human pantry full of people who are being slowly eaten one limb at a time. And the father and son run for their lives from this place as as the owners of this house are coming back. And uh, as they, they get away from that and they run... And the father has this terrible thought that he, he wonders if he's going to be able to kill his son um, to keep his son from being captured and raped or killed for food. And they walk on. They keep moving south. And all the while, they are running lower and lower on food. And... The father's getting to the point now where he secretly thinks that the the end is pretty near for both of them. He secretly thinks that they're about to die. And the boy asks him basically for reassurance that they would never eat people. And his father reassures him and tells him that they are the good guys. And he says that they are carrying the fire and they would never eat people. And this uh, idea of carrying the fire is something I'll, I'll spend some time on at the end. At this moment where it is, the father is almost certain that they're going to die, they stumble upon this house in a field, and they find in the middle of the kind of the backyard, there is a buried door. And in this door is an underground bomb shelter. And it is stocked with water and food and beds and blankets and clothing and everything that they could need. Um, a whole bunch of food of all differing kinds, and it's, it's a godsend. And the boy and the father spend several days in this bunker um, eating and recuperating and uh, gaining back some of their their weight, and uh, they 
there's some hope that's rekindled in this bunker that they're going to be able to uh, to find to to survive a little longer. And so they stay there for a while, but eventually the father realizes that they can't stay there forever because they're still too far north. They have to get further south. So they find another shopping cart, and the father loads it up with as much food as they can carry, and they leave, and they go on south. And after a while, they meet an old man who's traveling alone. And at first, the father is very edgy about this old man. He thinks he might be bait, uh, some sort of trap that is set to, to lure them in. But the son believes that the old man is just somebody who needs help. This good man, probably, who just needs some help. And the son begs the father to help the old man. And the father finally agrees to it. And so they sat, they sit down with this old man. And the old man is just enamored with the boy. He's staring at the boy and he tells the father that he never thought he would see another child in his life. Um, and they reluctantly, the father agrees to sit down with the old man and have a meal. And the they talk a little bit. And the old guy's name is... He gives this name Eli. But uh, he admits it's not his real name. And he, he tells him he's way older than he actually is. And the old man's kind of crazy, and he believes that his survival depends on on not being found out who he really is. Uh, and the father and Eli talk for a while, and they talk about what survival means, and whether it's better to be alive or dead. And the next morning... The son argues that they should give some of their food to the old man. They should share uh, some of their cans of food with the old man. And the father doesn't want to, but he reluctantly agrees. And the, the father wants the old man, Eli, to thank them, thank his son for the food, but the old man refuses to feel any gratitude um, for this gesture. And he says that it's not something he would have done. Uh, so he's not going to be thankful for it. He's kind of a weird character, really. Um, they go further south, they keep moving, and the father's cough, his sickness, worsens. And he gets so sick that he is sick for several days, and the boy is worrying that he is going to die. And the father isn't sure whether he is or not. And uh, they, the father lays sick for several days and finally kind of gets better. But when he gets better, he's, he's weaker. And he can sense that he's weaker. And he can sense that there is a kind of change in the, in the son's attitude about everything. And this worries him because he... He, he's worried that that divine light, that hopefulness in the sun is going out. Oh, further on, further on, they keep moving. Um, they see more corpses in the road, and this is kind of a weird scene, but the father tries to 
protect his son again from seeing these corpses that are extremely gruesome. Like they are, they're corpses that are half melted into the black top. And the, the father explains to him that like everything was on fire and the people couldn't get away. They keep moving and the father starts to think that somebody is maybe following them or maybe there's somebody else around. And this is shortly confirmed when they meet a group of three people around this campfire. And as soon as the group sees the father, um, they they uh, run away. Um, and it is this man and two, two men and a woman. And the woman is extremely pregnant. And later on, that very day, they see a campfire in the distance. And they sneak up to this campfire and again, they see the same three people, and again, as soon as they see the father, they all rush away and they run, but something is left at the campfire. And this, this part of the book is the darkest and most troubling part of the book. And this is the, this is the thing that if anything can shatter the boy, it is going to be this moment. Because when they walk up to the campfire, they see that what is over the campfire is the newborn baby that the woman was pregnant with. And it has been laid over the campfire to eat. And like I said, this book is super dark and this is the darkest part of the book. And uh, the son doesn't fully understand what has transpired here because he doesn't quite understand that the, that the woman was pregnant. But uh, the, the father is not even equipped to explain any of this to the son. They keep going south. They run out of food completely again. Again, they're starting to, to starve. Uh, they're getting worse and worse. Um... They find some more canned food. Once again, like every time they get to the end of their rope, they find just enough food to kind of keep them going. And they keep moving, they keep moving, and then finally, finally, they get to the ocean. And this is the place they've been trying to make for the whole time. The father's always been trying to move south, but uh, he's he's been telling the son about the ocean the whole time because he remembers the ocean from when he is when he was a child. And when they reach the ocean, it is this massive letdown. There is no blueness to it. The entire ocean is this bleak gray mass, and it doesn't even look like water. And there is no life. There's no birds, no fish. There is uh, there's nothing. And the, the father apologizes to the son because the water's not blue. And as far as the eye can see on the beach, there's the bones of millions of dead fish. Um, 
And so this is this this huge letdown of what where they were headed. But then the father says that uh, it's they're just going to keep moving south. It's the only thing to do is to keep moving south. So they do. And shortly after that, the son becomes very sick with a fever. And for a few days, the son hovers between life and death. And the father feels this absolute terror at losing his son. And he's prepared to to shoot himself with his last bullet if his son dies. And on the seventh day, instead of dying, the son recovers and lives. And they keep moving on down the beach and to the south. Uh, when they leave their cart for a while on a certain day, they come back and they find it is stolen. And they chase down the thief that steals it. And the thief has a a butcher knife is his only weapon, and the father still has the pistol. And the the father is going to shoot and kill the thief. He's absolutely incensed that the thief stole their belongings because it is it is akin to killing them. And the father wants to kill him, but the son, of course, begs for the thief's life. And the father kind of half agrees to this, and he he's still furious. He makes the thief take all his clothes off and put everything back in the cart, and then makes and then they leave, and they leave the thief standing there naked in the road. And the son can't stop crying at this thing his father has done, this this mistreatment, this kind of cruel thing. And he can't stop crying because he understands what his father has done. And he even talks him into turning around and taking the thief's clothes back to him, but when they go back, they can't find him, and so they leave the clothes in the road. And the father tries to rationalize this, and he says that uh, he, he didn't kill the thief, he wasn't going to kill the thief, and then his son says something very wise to him. And his son says, we did kill him by taking his clothes. They keep going. They move on for three more days. And as they're passing through this small town, somebody shoots the father with an arrow from a, from a window in the leg. And the father shoots back at the assailant with a flare gun that he has and kills him. Um, and then he, he uses the fir a first aid kit to, to kind of suture up the wound and they rest for a day in the, in the buildings. Um, and then they keep moving. And the, the, the leg heals, but not completely. And the father's cough is getting worse and worse, and he keeps coughing up more blood. Finally, they can go no further. And the father is laying there, and he realizes he is dying. And this is the kind of climax of the book, because the father has a decision to make. 
he can leave his son behind by himself with no one else with the understanding that he probably isn't going to make it and his death is probably going to be violent and painful and awful. Or he can shoot his son before he dies because the father at this point knows he is dying. And the father knows he can't bring himself to do it. And he, he, can't, he can't bear to hold his son's dying body. And instead of doing this horrible thing that he thinks is, is the only thing the father thinks will spare the boy from, from a horrible death, the father tells the son that he believes that goodness will find him. And then he dies. The father dies in the son's arm, and with this last thought being the last little piece of faith that the father has that maybe something good will happen instead of something bad to his son. And the son lies with the... He sits with his father's body for three days, and then he walks out to the road. And as soon as he walks out to the road... He's approached by a man. And the man looks very rough. He's got a scar on his face. He's carrying a shotgun. He looks disheveled. And you're for a second, you're very worried about what's going to happen. And then the man explains that uh, he's he's been following them. And he asks the boy about his father. And the boy says that his father died. And once the man understands this and they see the body and and the man understands what has happened he offers the son to come with him and he the son asked this guy if he's one of the good guys and this man says that he is and he assures him that he's that he's not one of the bad guys he's not a cannibal and not, not only is he not a cannibal this guy has a wife and two children. And they are also traveling south trying to survive. And they also do not eat people. And so they wrap the father in the blanket. And the, the boy returns with this stranger to the road. And when he reaches the road, he is greeted by this wife of the man. And this wife gives him this big motherly hug and says that she's so glad that he's safe and he's with them. And that's the end of the book. And I think it is a, a just a beautiful ending to this very dark, horrible book of terror because the ending is hopeful. The ending is hopeful for the boy and the boy and these people that he has met are good guys, and they are carrying the fire. So what does that mean to carry the fire? And this is the, this is the message that the author is trying to get across to you in the story. And he, the author is telling you that you should carry the fire. Uh, but what does that mean? Well, there's, there's a lot of different ways to answer the question, and to fully answer the question and fully explain it, 
it would take way more time than we have right now. It would take days, months, years to fully get your head around what carrying the fire means. Because carrying the fire isn't just something that you do in a day, it is how you live your life. And this goes back to the the title of the book being The Road. Just because, like, they're traveling down many roads the whole time, they're always going south, but the road, the title is this, the meaning of the book is this, the road is the way that you walk, the, the path that you take in life. And the whole time throughout the book, the father is showing his son how to walk in the world and how to be. And that is, that's the reason it's called the book, the road. Um, now McCarthy is really heavy into biblical imagery and this has ties to, to the Bible, the road, the way you walk it, the, the path, the way, right? Um, the road means the path. It's the way you walk in your life and it's how you travel through your life. And that's what carrying the fire means. That, that'll help you understand what carrying the fire is. And fire is this very used symbol in literature. It's always a symbol for hope for humanity. It's a sign for faith. Um, in the oldest days of humankind, you know, fire is what separated humans from animals. In Greek mythology, Prometheus stole fire from the gods to give it to humanity. In Judeo-Christian tradition, in the Old Testament, God speaks through a burning bush as a fire. Um, he travels in a pillar of cloud and fire. Um, in the New Testament, John the Baptist says that even though he baptizes with water, Jesus will baptize with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Fire is the symbol for humanity, civilization, hope, faith, all over the world, all different cultures, all throughout history. So that's one part of the puzzle. If fire is the symbol for hope of civilization and humanity and faith, what does carrying the fire, what does that mean? And it kind of means what it says. It's, it's, uh, it's hard to grasp in the modern world, I think, because... Number one, it's really easy to get fire. You don't have to work to get fire. And we don't use fire as much as people that came before us did. It's not as important to us as it was to our ancestors. We don't have to use torches or candles most of the time because we have electricity. We don't have to keep like a, a fireplace, a hearth fire going because we have a gas stove or electricity or whatever, and it, it turns on with the push of a button. And that's the world that we live in, and it was the world that the man lived in before the events in the novel. But, here's the problem though. If you don't have to work for something, you don't value it nearly as much. And here is where we start getting to the message of the novel. In the novel, the modern world is completely gone. And all of those people who have electricity and the internet and a stove and a, dishwave, a dishwasher and a microwave, they don't have any of that anymore. And so I guess my question is, how many of you, if you had to tonight, 
could start a fire without any of that? How many of you can start a fire without matches or a lighter? And my guess is not very many of you. It's not easy to do. Uh, most of you don't have the knowledge of how to do it. And even if you have the basic principles, um, you can take it from me because I've tried and I had a, I had a whole class in college that was wilderness survival. And we had like, uh, we spent like two, three hour class periods just trying to make fire with a bow and drill. And, uh, I will be honest, I never got it to work. And a lot of people in class never got it to work. There was only, I would say out of a class of like 35 kids, there was only like three people who actually made it work. My point is, it's not easy to do. It takes a whole bunch of work, um, and it takes a whole bunch of practice. Uh, so what's the point of me talking about using a bow and drill to start fire? When people who are not used to working for something all of the sudden have to work for it, how well do they fare? And the answer is not very well, right? Uh, they just don't have much luck at it. And so this is, this is where making the fire intercedes with other things. How easy is it for society to be moral when everyone more or less lives comfortably? It's easy to be hopeful and faithful and moral when your life isn't very hard. Uh, how easy is it to get fat when the grocery stores are full of food? Um, you can even you can even be a vegan or a, a, a vegetarian or a thousand other hipster diets if you want to. Because you can go to the store and you have your own selection of gluten-free, you know, non-GMO, ethically sourced kale or soy quesadillas. Do you think there are any vegans running around in the, in the world of this novel of the road? No, there are not. Um, and that's the point. When it's easy to be moral, humans are moral. When it's easy to be principled, humans have principles. When it's easy to have faith, humans have faith. But what happens when it's hard to do all those things? Well, historically, what happens during times of war and famine? Do good things usually happen? No, not usually. In war, innocent people are killed. Women are raped. Children die. It happens in every war. And these acts are committed by every side, though some more than others. In times of famine, what happens? Well, what happened a couple years ago when everybody panicked and went and bought all the toilet paper? Did people buy what they needed and leave extra for other people? Or did people buy everything they could? Now, imagine if we were in a real crisis and it wasn't just toilet paper. What if it was all the things at the store? What if the store was empty? How easy would it be to be a moral, hopeful, faithful person if you were a parent who was watching their child starve? What would you do if there is no food and your child hasn't eaten for a week? The options start disappearing, right? It, and this is a kind of a scary thing to think about, but it's something you should think about if you want to know yourself. 
think about it, especially if you have a child, and this is another thing I didn't really understand until I had a child. You have a child and your child hasn't eaten for a week. Is there anything you wouldn't do to get food for your child? I can tell you right now, for me, it would be very hard to keep my morality and not do anything and everything possible to feed my child. I might feel bad about it. I might not like it. But I tell you right now, I would do it. And a lot of other people would do it too. Um, and when your options start disappearing, you only have a couple, you know, options. You can be like the mother in the story and you can give up. Or you can be like the bad guys and you can throw all your morals out the window and start chowing down on your fellow man. Or the third option is to carry the fire. So what carrying the fire is, is holding on to and protecting your morals, your principle, your, your faith, your hope, and your life, even when doing so is really hard. And so can, any, can anyone and everyone do that is the question. Well, I'll take you back to an earlier question I asked you a second ago. Can you start a fire with no matches or lighter by yourself alone in the deep dark woods? Not everybody can, which means not everyone is capable of carrying the fire. Step one of carrying the fire. I just gave it to you. You have to know what it means to carry the fire before you can carry the fire. But that's not enough, is it? To carry the fire, you have to learn about it. You have to truly learn what morality and principles are and what they mean. You have to actually believe in them. You have to critically think about them and understand them. Uh, what else do you have to do if you actually want to be want to carry the fire? Uh, I go back to that thing like, uh, what would you do if your kid hasn't eaten for a week? Well, my answer is, I would go out and I would probably kill a deer because I live in the country. I have enough land, I can go find something to kill. I have a pretty good storage of food in my pantry. I am about as self-sufficient as, I don't know, I don't want to say as, as anybody because that's absolutely not true, but I'm way more self-sufficient than a lot of people. I'm way more self-reliant than a lot of people because I understand the possibility of what can happen. This is why... When people laugh at, like, uh, people who have a couple months of food storage on hand and call them crazy for being preppers, um, those people aren't going to have to compromise their values if things get really bad. They don't have to decide between dying or taking from someone else if things got really bad. Um, the fire can't just be held. It has to be carried, it has to be protected, and to carry the fire you have to learn what civilization and morality actually mean, and then you have to learn how to protect them. So it's not just food in your pantry or, you know, having a gun and knowing how to use it, it's way more than that. It, it means holding on to your morality when other people aren't. It means holding on to your principles when other people aren't. It means learning 
learning how to take care of yourself, gaining knowledge on how to take care of yourself. Um, and I would say learning the wisdom of your ancestors, like learning about all the great thinkers of the past, you know, hundred years, learning, learning about what's actually in that Bible that sits on your shelf and what it actually says, reading and understanding history, reading and understanding uh, philosophy and morality. You can't just not know anything or not believe anything and exist outside of the super uber protected world that we currently live in. But I would encourage everybody out there who's listening to me to become a person who's capable of carrying the fire. Because the more people who carry the fire, the less of a chance there is of the fire going out. And I don't think I have to tell you what the fire going out means, because we just talked about this whole novel of the entire novel is, is what happens when the fire goes out. And the only people carrying it are, are a handful. Um, so, uh, why is all this important? You can just sit on your couch and watch Netflix. And uh, if you're hungry, you can turn on your microwave and heat up a Hot Pocket. If you're thirsty, you can go to the faucet and get water. Our lives are so easy. It's not hard to live. But it's important because... If history is, has shown us anything, it's that nothing lasts forever. There's no civilization in the history of mankind that hasn't had difficult times of war, plague, and famine. And maybe this is just me. Well, it's not just me, but maybe I'm being paranoid. Maybe I'm just being a little crazy, but... It kind of seems to me like we are headed towards, in our own country, it seems like we're headed towards difficult times. Whether those difficult times are economic, whether it is uh, political violence, which seems to be a very real possibility. I mean, this I'm recording this on August 30th, 2022, and if you're somebody who watches even a little bit of the news and sees what's trending, you know, on Twitter, the the rhetoric on political divide in the country is at a place where it hasn't been since probably 1860. If they had Twitter in 1860, my guess is it would look a lot like Twitter in 2022. Um, and I think that that's... We're headed towards something in the country that has the possibility of causing difficulties. And I don't know, maybe it's just me, but I think a lot of people can just feel it. Like in your bones, you can kind of feel like there's something coming that might not be great. So if that does come to pass, if those times come, and if you're unable to carry the fire... Well, there's really only 
two other options if you're unable to carry the fire, and neither one of them is very pleasant. So the last question I'll leave you with before I wrap this up, because I'm a little over what I wanted to be, is uh, who do you want to be if that time ever comes? When that time ever comes? Who do you want to be? Do you want to be somebody who is capable of carrying the fire and does carry the fire? My hope would be yes, that you want to be one of those people who will carry the fire. So, if you aren't one of those people, I suggest that you start making the changes required to become one of those people. Because maybe I'm wrong, but uh, ask yourself, do you, do you feel the the winds? Can you feel, can you feel the weirdness on the breeze? I don't know. I can. Anyways, I'll leave you with that. Uh, thanks for tuning in. Thank you for your time. And I'll catch you guys next time on the Capo podcast.